Mouse to Mouse, Episode 8. Hit the road, Jack. As we woke on our fourth morning in California, we did so to the prospect that in many ways, this would be our first real day in America. I know this sounds like an odd and contradictory statement, but bear with me. Actually, as a completely off-topic aside, for years I couldn't work out whether that appeal for patience should be bare as in big, furry and full of teeth, or bare as in naked. It seems the English language is just plain baffling, regardless of your side of the Atlantic. What I mean is that as fun and fantastic as our time in Anaheim had been, it was very much lived within the Disneyland bubble. The only time that we'd ever really ventured out of the world that Walt made was to sleep and travel to and from the parks. Even then, when you consider the fact of how little of the town that surrounds Disneyland was anything other than orange groves before 1955, it's hard to shake the idea that, while I know I've already given him a production credit on the whole nation, Walt Disney certainly deserves one on modern Anaheim. I've often thought about this, and even talk about it with students, particularly in connection to French philosopher Jean Baudrillard's suggestion that Disneyland exists precisely to be obviously fake in order to help reinforce the realness of Southern California, which is, in truth, just as constructed and fantastical as the theme parks themselves. I need to be careful here, though, as if I get carried away, this chapter could spin uncontrollably down the philosophical rabbit hole faster than Alice on roller skates, and before you know it, we'll be reflecting on the nature of reality and comparing Sleeping Beauty Castle with Richard Nixon, and that is an academic minefield that should be ventured into with extreme caution, and I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear that this is definitely not the place to do it. What I will say, though, is that of all the people who headed in the direction of the world's most famous regional theme park that morning, there was one British family that, while sad to bid farewell to it, were very excited, if slightly nervous, to be saying hello to the 4,000-mile expanse of the United States that was about to open up in front of them. It is, I think, important to note here that the reason we were actually on the ART bus travelling back to the Disneyland Resort is that I'm nothing if not a stickler for ludicrous, self-imposed rules. The title on the cover of this book is Mouse to Mouse, so it just would not do for us to pick up a car from some rental office in a featureless strip mall near our hotel, although several such facilities existed and would doubtless have been more convenient. No, if the quest was going to be called Mouse to Mouse, then Mouse to Blessed Mouse we would drive, and this clearly meant that our point of origin, or at least that of the car, must be from within the Disneyland Resort itself, or frankly, the entire scheme would lose all seriousness. Unfortunately, There was not a branch of Alamo situated directly next to the Emporium on Main Street, USA, but it turned out there was one in downtown Disney, tucked right around the corner from the Disneyland Hotel. So this was self-evidently the rental office for us. Although, as I've already confessed, for guilty confession it feels like when addressing the inhabitants of such an auto-obsessed nation, I am a non-driver and would be entirely reliant on the skill behind the wheel of my good lady wife to get us across America. For some strange reason, I'm always the one who has to take the lead in procuring rented motor vehicles. This, I must further confess, is usually a task that ranks slightly below smashing my fingers with a piano lid in the list of things I look forward to. Invariably, the higher company operative behind the desk 
has been on a series of upselling retreats dedicated to the art of convincing his or her victims that failure to add super mega platinum insurance cover to every moving part of the automobile will invariably result in its instantaneous external combustion and therefore promise a lifetime of walk-on parts in a courtroom docudrama entitled Foreign Drivers Do the Stupidest Things. This is always made slightly more awkward by the fact that I am entirely predisposed to refuse such a sales pitch, while the love of my life, and the driver of my car, takes completely the opposite approach, and if anything, tries to egg the sales droid on to add a few more dollars to the bill. With this in mind, I made sure that we had purchased our own external insurance cover and briefed Sarah that it would render us financially ironclad against everything from scratch paintwork to nuclear holocaust. Not that I expected this to cut any ice with Mr Alamo 2015. So it was then that I approached the desk, braced for impact and bullishly slid my printed confirmation slip across the work surface. Do you need insurance cover? He asked with a smile. No thanks, I replied, getting ready to counter his counter-argument. Okay, have a safe trip. It's a blue Ford Fusion, he beamed and handed over the keys. For a couple of moments, we both looked at each other. He, wondering what this odd British chap was waiting for, and me, being an odd British chap, waiting to defend my position until eventually the penny dropped. That he was actually a normal human being who seemingly believed that I could be trusted with his motor car and suddenly my faith in sales assistance was almost restored. When setting out on the first few fledgling miles of a major road trip in a strange car that is obliged to drive on the opposite side of the road to that which the driver is used, I believe the standard etiquette from passengers is to shut up and let the driver become acquainted. The problem with this very reasonable piece of good form tends to come about when one of the passengers happens to be a particularly excited four-year-old boy. No sooner had we made the momentous movement out of the outer boundaries of Disneyland that he began to sing his favourite song, which oddly for a child of his age was, at that moment, since he had heard it on one of his mum's playlists, a very nice country rock number entitled Holding On and Letting Go by the American singer Ross Copperman. I know what you're thinking. At least it wasn't some horrifically annoying kiddie song, and of course you're right, or at least you would be if Tyler's command of his favourite song consisted of more than the words one door swinging open, one door swinging closed, which are then repeated on a loop, and let's just say that Frank Sinatra, he ain't, until he became bored with them. Half an hour into the journey, while he was most decidedly not bored with them, the other passengers in the car were on the verge of a mental breakdown, while the driver was, I think, seriously considering steering into the oncoming traffic for the relief that such oblivion might bring. Thankfully, after a period of crescendo in which three voices rose as one to implore the fourth to give it a rest, he was persuaded that his chances of reaching our first stop while still sitting in his seat as opposed to within one of the suitcases would be greatly improved if the swinging door were to remain permanently closed. The fact that there was a good opportunity of some sort of toy being procured at the stop didn't hurt in those negotiations either. I must concede, on the subject of our first stop on the road in the good old US of A, that the fact that it was scheduled to be a branch of McDonald's probably doesn't seem terribly promising. Let's face it, Mackie D's is pretty much ubiquitous across America, as it is with the notable exception of Iceland, Bermuda and most of Africa across the vast majority of the globe. 
So why would a family in search of that mythical, unique Walt Disney spirit of the 1950s be so keen to roll up at the ultimate symbol of 21st century globalisation? Hell, the sociologist George Ritzer even named a much-celebrated critical book on the subject, The McDonaldization of Society. Well, the answer lies in the fact that on the way to McDonald's in Downey, California, we must have driven past several hundred restaurants bearing the famous Golden Arches, until we eventually found one that didn't. The McDonald's in Downey, you see, dates from before Disneyland, 1953 to be precise, and while it can't lay claim to be in the first branch, that honour belonged to a small octagonal building opposite Monrovia Airport, which opened in 1937, and later moved to the more famous site in San Bernardino, selling 15-cent hamburgers. This little time capsule in Downey, actually the company's third restaurant, remains the world's oldest operating McDonald's. Like so much roadside history across America, the claim is a matter of dispute, as the company's official history credits the site in De Plains, Illinois, actually the ninth restaurant, primarily because this was the first involvement of the franchising wizard Ray Kroc, who later bought the company from the McDonald brothers for $2.7 million. Indeed, it was the very fact that the franchising agreement for the Downey restaurant had been signed with the brothers rather than Crocs company that meant it was not subject to the modernisation requirements that rendered all its younger siblings so uniform. This meant that when we eventually got to Downey, rather than the familiar but rather bland decor that the world had become used to, the speedy McDonald's, as it's colloquially known, was exactly the kind of shining example of roadside American architecture that we had so hoped to see. The eponymous Speedy, the company's original icon, when Ronald wasn't so much as a twinkle in Papa Clown's eye, is a little cartoon chef who represents the ideal that the McDonald brothers based their restaurants on and sits astride a single golden arch. The hamburger stand itself looks for all the world like something straight out of a scene from American graffiti, and much to our delight, when we placed our order, it came in old-fashioned paper bags and boxes that were entirely in keeping with the 50s vibe, which was perhaps predictably, but nonetheless enjoyably, continued by the rock and roll soundtrack that played over the restaurant's speaker system. There was a small museum of McDonald's memorabilia, which was mildly diverting, but the real joy was in stepping back to a time before Ray Kroc's giant franchising machine devoured the world and make everything look and taste the same. One smaller side about Croc himself is that he, just like Walt Disney, had lied about his age to become a Red Cross ambulance driver during World War I, and the two boys actually met whilst training in Sound Beach, Connecticut. Croc apparently later attempted to reach out to his old acquaintance in a letter after he had finalised his deal with the McDonald brothers in an attempt to secure his new brand a spot at Disneyland. Croc claimed that the deal couldn't be done because Walt had insisted that he raise his prices to increase Disney's share of the profits. Many believe this was just a good story to conceal the fact that the proposal had simply been rejected. Even at this early stage in our time on the road, I'd learned one important thing, and that was that my route planning, while meticulous, was probably somewhat on the overambitious side. In my fantasy road trip, Whilst sat at the kitchen table at home, we had pulled into Downey and had a quick post-breakfast snack with Speedy, but in reality, we had just sat down and consumed a slightly late lunch. This of course meant that the long list of stops that we were due to make before we pulled into Las Vegas late that afternoon would almost certainly have to be cut back, and there was more than an even chance 
that late afternoon might turn inexorably into night. For now, though, we were back on the road and heading toward the bright lights of Hollywood. As I think I have mentioned, Sarah and I had been to California before the kids came along, and we'd done the full pilgrimage around the homes of the stars and trekked up and down Hollywood Boulevard, and if I'm entirely honest, been rather underwhelmed by the whole experience. It had, however, been a long time, and Annabelle was very keen to see the Hollywood sign and the Walk of Fame, so we duly braved their vehicular madness around the place and headed to Hollywood and Highland. Once we'd parked deep underground, we hopped in an elevator and went up to one of the suspended walkways to join what seemed like the entire population of Japan in taking a photograph of the famous sign, and then made our way down to street level so we could look at a series of names written on a floor, while simultaneously attempting to avoid costume nutcases who wanted nothing more than to have a picture taken with us, for a small fee. While I think the children were vaguely amused by the whole thing, we generally drew the same conclusions that we had years before, that Hollywood is actually a bit of a dump, and that we were happy not to incur any more than the one-hour parking charge on our rental car before heading out of Tinseltown at full tilt. Even with a revised plan of action and the time ticking on well into late afternoon, there was one more place that I wanted to visit before we left California. So much had been written and said about the life of Walt Disney, and there has been almost as many column inches devoted to his death It seems fitting that a life story so heavily laden with myth and magic should, as is the current custom of Disney's Marvel blockbusters, have a final teasingly climactic scene after the closing credits. Sure, the discovery of terminal cancer and an all-too-sudden death that shocked and saddened the world in December of 1966 was extremely dramatic, but this was Walt Disney, the greatest showman and manufacturer of magic since Harry Houdini. Is it any wonder, then, Rather than simply accepting the passing of a man seen in such a prophetic light, a mass belief in a resurrection mythology should begin to emerge. Everyone has heard the tall tales of Walt's fascination with the pseudoscience of cryogenics, and given his track record of championing the transformative potential of new technologies, it really wasn't a huge leap for a fan community who were, after all, desperate for it to be true. The fact that unlike many other major public figures, and honestly, who at that time was more major than Walt Disney, Walt's death and subsequent funeral were decidedly low-key. Private affairs simply served to fuel the urban myth of a frozen creator ready to be resurrected in order to take his place on the throne of his magic kingdom. I suspect that if there had been some imposing tomb or mausoleum that millions of adoring fans could visit, as if Disneyland wasn't a big enough monument to his genius, then such urban myths may not have persisted. But just like the private nature of his funeral, Walt's gravesite was a simple, unassuming garden at Forest Lawn Memorial Park. And that was exactly where we were headed next. The first thing to note about the cemetery is that Memorial Park is exactly the right description for the stunningly beautiful rolling hillside that constitutes it. Forest Lawn is at once both deeply impressive and lavishly imposing, and the drive through it to locate Walt's grave is a memory that will not soon leave me. The second is that if you don't know where to find it, you are not likely to stumble upon the final resting place of Walter Elias Disney. I cannot convey strongly enough that it really is the tiniest, most understated and tranquil of gardens. There are no signs to identify where the ashes of one of the most famous men of the 20th century are interred, and there is certainly none of the fantasy imagery that he became so synonymous with. Once we did locate the garden, 
The rest of the family stayed in the car as I stood alone in silent reflection in the late afternoon Burbank sun and gazed upon the modest wall plaques that bore the names of several members of the Disney family. After having spent the previous few days being just the kind of family playing together that Walt had supposedly envisaged while sitting on the bench all those years before, it was an odd but deeply moving privilege to be able to stand and reflect upon that extraordinary life in these peaceful and rather meditative surroundings. If the views across the wonderfully manufactured hills of Forest Lawn will stay with me for a long time, then the moments spent within those sacred precincts of that garden will remain in my memory as long as I live. After all, without the man to whom I was paying my respects, this trip, and probably the man I had become, would not exist. Exist it did, though, and as the sun was beginning to set, we still had the best part of 300 miles of desert to put behind us before we could go to bed in Las Vegas. (laughs) 